All right. James 2. I've read through James many times, done several Bible studies on it, and it's always amazing to me how God's Word is fresh, that it says maybe a little different perspective or you see things in a little different light than you did the last time you studied it. That is the beauty of the living, powerful Word of God that cuts through us to our very marrow. Not that this passage is new at all, but there's so much to learn and new application for every time we read it. So in today's study, I hope you saw this passage was very practical. And in examining my own life this week, I got my toes stepped all over the place. So I want to share the love and let you get your toes stepped on too. <laughs> no, perhaps that you'll see some of the things um, that convicted me in my own life may be things that we can all see in our own lives as we examine ourselves. In this section of, in this season of study, I saw this chapter sort of divided into two sections. Verses 1 through 13 talk about loving our neighbor well. And 14 through 26 talk about working out our faith. And they do overlap. But it sort of seemed the emphasis in those two sections might be a little different. Both of them are so practical. They convict me in many points. So as we look at this passage today, I want, to, I want you to ask yourself two main questions. Am I speaking and acting as one who loves my neighbor well? And then, does my life and works show that I live by faith? Let's pray and ask God to show us those things. Oh, great God. We thank you that you have chosen to speak to us in your word. We thank you that you want us to know you. You want us to know you intimately. And so, Lord, we pray today that as we know you better and better, we will become more like you, that we won't just be hearers of the word, we'll be doers, and that our lives will show that in our obedience and in our works, that we will show that we have saving faith in you. Oh, God, convict us today where you want to convict us. Make us women more and more like you. In your name we pray, amen. So let's begin with the first half of the chapter, loving our neighbor well. James is written to believers and to those of us who say we have saving faith. The final verse in chapter 1, if you'll remember, remember the Bible wasn't written in chapters. So, the, But the last verse we looked at in chapter 1 ended with this. Pure and undefiled religion is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So it might be easy to decide from that, moving to the next verse, the first verse of James 2. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. It might have been easy for the reader, after hearing, oh, I need to keep myself unstained from the world, to think, oh, I better watch out for anybody who looks kind of stained. And it would be easy for them and us to make the assumption that 
somebody who doesn't look like they have that same kind of pure, undefiled religion we have, we better not um, hang with them. But as James does so well, he wants to delve a little deeper. So I'm going to read again verses one through, uh, now verses 2 through 4. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and you pay special attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, and you say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. I looked up the word dishonor, and you know it means this, to disgrace, to treat disgracefully, to insult because you perceive that one to have no value. Oof. That's what we're saying when we show partiality. We are dishonoring others. We are saying they have no value. James basically addresses this whole attitude with a stern reprimand, and he basically says, are you loving your neighbor well? So I thought of this story. In December, I was in Ethiopia visiting my son. He attends a multicultural church, and one Sunday morning, a homeless man who attends their church came and sat down beside him. Kent said they have those uh, folding chairs, and they're kind of all squished together. And Kent said he couldn't even look in his direction. The stench was so bad. And when fellowship time came, the man wanted to hug him. And his breath was horrible. And Kent said he wanted to get up and move because he couldn't physically hardly take sitting next to this homeless man who obviously wanted to express love and faithfully attends that church. But he thought of this passage in James 2. And said I couldn't move because I would be showing partiality. And I tell you that story because I thought that is the perfect example. There we go. That's what it looks like. But you know what? I realized that's just a cop-out for me. That doesn't make it personal to my life. It's just a sweet story about my son over in Ethiopia. But you know, this Sunday when I go to Grace, I probably am not going to sit next to a homeless person. And I might not have very many people who come in who look shabbily dressed. So how does this passage apply to me? That's what we need to look at. God wants to bring this text closer to our hearts and examine what the real same issue looks like for us in Germantown, Collierville, Tennessee. How do I dishonor people when they enter our assembly? Maybe even Bible study this morning. So I'm going to ask you the same questions that I struggled with as I examined my own heart. Do I reach out to people who come to church, those I don't know, who may be new? Do I ask them to join me, to sit with me, because they look a little uncomfortable? Do I avoid some people because I struggle to relate to them or because they're different from me? Maybe I'm afraid of the way they appear. If somebody new strikes up a conversation, 
do I just kind of hurry things up because I've got my own things to do and they're kind of interrupting who I really want to go talk to? Do I hurry up so I can go visit with the friends I prefer to hang with, the people I'm more comfortable with? Or what if I see somebody who doesn't really look like a churchgoer should look? Maybe it's that teenage girl who's got on those two short shorts. Or maybe it's that visitor over there coming with somebody who has several piercings and several tattoos. Or what if it's somebody who doesn't look like I think they ought to come to church and look like? How do I respond to them? And besides, is James only talking about when we come to church? In this passage, he's talking about coming to the assembly. But if you look down in the next section in verses 15 through 17, He's talking about, you see, a brother or sister in need who doesn't have clothing. That doesn't sound like they're at church. So certainly there's got to be application for the way we treat people in everyday life, not just when they come to church. If so, we could check that off their list. I'm doing pretty good when I'm at church. But how about when we're out there? And is it only the way we treat believers? Is that what James is saying? You only have to treat believers well. They're the only people you have to respond with. No. We could, he talks about you need to love your neighbor as yourself. And as we know from Jesus' teaching, our neighbor is not just believers. Think of the story of the Good Samaritan. 12 and 13 say this. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And if I'm thinking about my own life and how to apply these scriptures, I might have to ask myself how I treat people in daily situations. When I go to the grocery, do I treat the cashiers and the baggers as nicely as I would the manager or my sweet little well-dressed friends who are standing in line behind me? Do I treat them with honor as I would the people, those other people? Do I expect to be waited on first at the restaurant or in the minor med? Because I'm certainly a lot more respectable and I can pay. Do I expect to be treated better in those situations? Am I really fulfilling God's royal law? And am I speaking and acting as one who loves my neighbor as himself? The second half of the chapter deals with the relationship between faith and works. Now, if you were here during Galatians, we studied Galatians, and the heavy emphasis in Galatians was that works, good works, or works at all, works cannot save us. Galatians made that very clear. Works will never make us right with God. Yet, James tells us that works are important. So I hope as you studied this week, you wrestled through that, especially if you looked at the cross-references and saw that while works never save us, our salvation will always be seen in our works. At the end of your cross-references, I had you look at Hebrews 11, because I was thinking of these saints who have gone before us, who spoke, thank you, Mary, these saints who have gone before us, who by faith did things, by faith obeyed God, by faith did this. So I want to go back to Hebrews and look at their lives 
ordinary people, just like us. You know, we look at these guys and we think, oh, I could never be like Abraham. I could never be like Moses. And y'all, we should be challenged. We do see them. But you know what? If we were talking to them, that they were saying, they'd say, oh, yeah, you can. You can be, you've got as great a God as I have. You've got all that you need with this God that you serve. I didn't think I could do it either. So I want us to put ourselves into these same scenarios and think how they apply to our lives, how our lives and our works could show that we have saving faith. So let's look at Hebrews 11 and bring it down to a personal level. Verse 7, if you're at Hebrews 11. By faith, Noah, being warned by God about things not seen, uh, not yet seen, excuse me, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. By faith, Noah built an ark. Like Noah, what if God asked me to do something that I might look foolish? What if I look stupid? Am I willing to obey God if it even makes me the object of ridicule or to my neighbors and friends? What if they make fun of me? Am I willing to obey God? Will my life and works show that I have true saving faith? How about an 8 through 10? By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was about to receive for an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, and then down in 10. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Like Abraham, what if God calls me to leave my home and go to a place I don't know, living with people I don't know? What if your husband gets transferred or you have a change in location? Will I go by faith knowing that even though I may not feel comfortable there, I have an eternal home where I'll always be comfortable and I can live with his people because by faith God will give me the grace to do it. Does my life and works show that I am living by faith? How about in 17 through 19? By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promise was offering up his only begotten son. On down in 19, he considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. Abraham, God asked Abraham to do something big, didn't he? But what if, like Abraham, God asked me to let go of my child, entrusting him into his hands? What if it looks frightening? What if it looks challenging and dangerous? What if it challenges all my fears as a mother? Will I entrust my child to God? Will I trust God to honor his promises? Like Abraham, will I let my life and works prove 
and show that I live by faith? How about Hebrews eleven twenty three? By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Moses' parents did not fear the king because they obeyed God. They trusted God with, their, with this child. So the question I ask myself, like Moses' parents, will I fear man and his laws? Or will I trust God when he tells me to do something? Will my life and works show that I live by faith? How about 24 through 26? By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. What if, like Moses, God asked me to give up my status, my circle of prosperous, lovely friends, to be uncomfortable and maybe made fun of by choosing to befriend and keep company with God's people, even if they're considered kind of weird? Will my life and faith show that I choose to obey God? 29 and 30. By faith, they, the children of Israel, passed through the Red Sea as though they were passing through dry land, and the Egyptians, when they attempted it, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. What if, like the children of Israel, my circumstances look utterly impossible? There are high waters and strong walls that I cannot pass or get through. Will I trust and obey God knowing that he is all-powerful and that he can part waters and knock down walls if he desires? Will my life show that I live by faith? Ladies, I think here at Grace, One of our great strengths is that we believe truth. We believe God's word says what it means, and we believe it, and we want to study it, and we want to know it. And, oh, praise God, we do. But one of the difficulties is that we can become complacent in our expression of faith. I think our tendency is for us to become satisfied that we believe good theology, and that's enough. We're satisfied with the knowledge alone. But real, true, saving faith is to be seen in our works, in our obedience. True, saving faith is to be seen in our lives. It is more than just knowing what the truth is. Now, some of you may be thinking, Carrie, you're sounding kind of harsh. You're sounding like, oh, um, you know, if I'm not, you know, if I'm, my, I'm not really living it out too much or I haven't had a lot of, I know it's hard to obey God or, you know, um, I haven't been fully obedient to the Lord, and I don't know if my life shows it very much. You're, you're saying I might not be saved. Is that what you're saying? Well, God, through James, warns us that just knowing the right facts 
knowing and believe that God even exists, that is not saving faith. That is not necessarily saving faith. Even demons believe that, James tells us in verse 19. They believe it so much they tremble and shudder because they know God is powerful. Do you know that demons have great theology? They believe God is God. They believe Jesus is the Messiah. They believe he's the Son of God. They believe God is all-powerful. They know God is God, and they fear him. So if demons believe that, they do not have saving faith. So it is very possible to know these things about God and not have a true saving faith. True saving faith will never be separate from works in an ongoing lifestyle, in an ongoing lifestyle. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see if you are of the faith. Maybe that makes you uncomfortable, uncertain. So if you feel that way today, settle that with the Lord before you leave this place. Cry out to God and agree with him that you are desperate and hopeless without the saving work of Christ. Then live by faith and let your life and work show it. Or maybe you're convicted today about a state of complacency. Seek his forgiveness and ask for his wisdom, which he wants to give you generously. And he will give you the enablement, the Holy Spirit, to enable you to obey him. And you will find that generous strength and wisdom to be able to walk in the good works he's already planned for you to walk in. Ladies, let's speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Because faith without works is dead. Let's pray. Oh God, I thank you that um, you've told us the truth even when we don't like it. And that you convict us even when we don't like it. I thank you that you love us enough to do that. So Lord, today as we examine our own hearts, I pray that you will reveal to us the truth about where we are with you and our relationship with you. And that for any woman in this room, Lord, who doesn't yet truly have saving faith, that you will cause her to cry out to you. And Lord, for any who... Um, like so often I, I am, that we need to get out of that state of complacency, that you would give us the grace, forgive us and give us the grace to move on. May we honor you in all that we do. In Christ's name we pray.